you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 10. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the fourth Gospel account. And this morning, we're going to continue on, actually, in our regular series through the Gospel of John, and we'll be in chapter 10. The verses that I wish to highlight this morning are... Just two verses, verses 17 and 18, but I want to get a little bit of the context for those verses, and so let me ask that we read together John 10, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 18. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And then these are the verses I wish to highlight for us this morning. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray once more. Father, please come now by your Spirit and teach us things that we do not know and show us things that we have not seen. Make us to be people who we have not been. Come, please, by your Spirit and through your Word and work in each one of our hearts, we pray, in the power of the risen Lord. Amen. I want to start this morning by saying a quick word uh, specifically to the children here this morning, uh, especially you kids who have uh, been in this church for any length of time. You certainly know by now that uh, the Bible is very important to us, as it ought to be for uh, all Christians, and um, indeed everything in the Bible is important. It's a big book, but it's not all that big. And everything that's in the Bible is important. The Bible tells us right about the creation of the world. It tells us a lot about ourselves. It tells us about God's law. It reveals various events that have taken place in history that are all very important. But now this is what I want you kids to understand this morning. Uh, everything is important in the Bible. And yet there's a particular message that the Bible teaches that is especially important. And we refer to that message often as the gospel. The gospel, that word, literally means good news. Did you know that, kids? Gospel means good news. And it's presented to us in many places in the Bible. The gospel is a specific message. It's not just everything that's in the Bible, but it's a specific message revealed in the Bible about what God has done by sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world uh, to live as a man, to live in human flesh, 
and then to die on the cross so that sinners could be forgiven. They believe on him in repentance and faith. But there's another part of the gospel, and that is that Jesus didn't just die, but he actually rose again, and that's what we're celebrating today, right? That's what we celebrate on Easter. We celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead. Now, I can remember when I was a kid loving Easter. It was a great holiday, and there were certain traditions that we observed as a family. We would usually have some large family meal with a special dinner that mom would fix, and there might be an Easter egg hunt, or we might have special friends over or something like that. But I want to tell you what is the absolute best thing that we celebrate on Easter. That is that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has risen from the dead, and this is why that is gospel, why that is good news. Because that means that now Jesus stands alive as a risen Savior, and He is ready to forgive anybody who comes to Him in repentance and faith, which means you kids, as we celebrate the living Jesus today, the risen Savior today, you can come to Jesus today, to the risen Savior who lives. He's not in the grave anymore. He stands now risen, ready to save anyone who would come to Him in repentance and faith. That's worth celebrating. That's what's so special about this day. We have a Savior who is alive, and that's good news for you, because that means you can be saved from your sins. Well, now I'd like to bring us all back in, okay? This morning, I would like us to appreciate that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that good news I just talked about, the coming of the Son of God into the world in human flesh, His living, His dying, His rising from the dead, that message... I want us to appreciate that it is no accident of history. It's not the product of a random series of events. I hope that we can see this morning that undergirding the events of the gospel, particularly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is undergirding those events, that message, is this charge, this command that was given from God the Father to God the the Son. John 10 verse 18 reveals to us that there was this charge. Jesus says, this charge I have been given from my Father. Namely, that he would lay down his life and that he would take it up again. There was a mission. There was a plan. There was a task given from the Father to the Son. And that is what undergirds all of salvation history, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, and his present willingness to receive sinners who come to him by faith. So let me ask that we read again verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge, or some translations say, this command I have received from my Father. So there are just Three points, three headings, three things I wish for us to reflect upon this morning in connection with this text and in celebration of the resurrection. First of all, consider with me, the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ was all part of a divine plan. The salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ was all part of a divine plan. Now, in the opening chapters of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we read of how God created the world, including 
Adam and Eve. And we read of how Adam and Eve rebelled against God, plunging the whole human race into a state of sin and misery. Listen, all that is wrong with the world today stems from sin and rebellion against God. And in a profound way, that first act of sin and rebellion against God, so small a thing to disobey the living God, and yet so hard in undoing that it would actually take the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to reverse that curse. Well, because of their disobedience, God judged the human race, but He did not abandon it altogether. Though, listen, He would have been perfectly just in doing so. But He didn't leave us. He didn't abandon us altogether. From the very beginning of this sinful mess, He purposed to bring about redemption and salvation for His people. From the beginning, God orchestrated a plan by which men and women would be saved through a Redeemer. His plan was not a plan B. God didn't start things and say, well, let's see how this goes. Let's see how they do on their own. He didn't ever give them the law with the expectation that, well, maybe they'll keep it. And maybe someone won't have to be sent. No, that wasn't the plan at all. The plan was only ever to save His people through a Redeemer. And as we read the Old Testament, and as we witness God's dealings with His people, and as we read the various redemptive covenants that God entered into with figures like Abraham and Moses and David, we witness the unfolding plan of redemptive history, this charge, this plan, this mission. We see with what demonstrations of power and authority God revealed Himself to His people. We see with what care God undertook to preserve Israel. And we see with what grace and love He prepared a way of salvation for His people. And this way of salvation was to come through a Redeemer who is the focus of salvation history. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to recount all the redemptive events uh, that took place in the Old Testament, though it might be very informative and edifying to do so. I simply want to highlight this point. The engine of salvation history, the driving force behind all the redemptive events of the Old Testament is this mission, this plan conceived in the Godhead, this command, this charge that the Father has given to the Son. And the Old Testament records the unfolding narrative of that plan of redemptive history, and everything is happening in line with this plan for the Son of God to come into the world to achieve redemption for sinners. Nothing in the Old Testament happens by accident. There are no accidents in redemptive history. There are no accidents in God's plan. That's always true. There's no accidents in God's plans in terms of redemption for sinful men and women. There's no accidents in God's plan for your life. Written across the Old Testament, we could write these words, all according to plan. There was a charge that was given. There was a mission that was being carried out. Actual salvation for real sinners is in view, and it would be achieved through this coming one, through this Redeemer, through this Messiah. This salvation would not come through Israel's monarchy. It would not come through conquering other nations or the defeat of Israel's enemies. It was never meant to come through obedience to the law. This salvation would only come through a Redeemer, the Son of God coming into the world in human flesh. And when we turn to the New Testament, that's exactly what we see happening. 
When we turn to John's gospel, even in the opening verses in John chapter 1, that's what happens. That word that was in the beginning, that word that was with God, that was God, of that word we read in John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. With the coming of the Son of God into the world, this redemptive plan begins to reach its climax. The Redeemer has come. The seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head. The prophet like Moses who spoke forth the word of God. The offspring of Abraham who would be a blessing to the nations. The son of David who would rule on his father's throne forever is here in the person of Jesus Christ and he has come to accomplish salvation for his people. The charge, the mission, the task, the command is coming to its climax. This is the father's ambassador, his emissary, his representative who will execute the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who will accomplish redemption for his people. We've seen already in John's account, haven't we, that he is the bread of life who says he will offer up his flesh for the life of the world. He is the light of the world who has come to deliver sinners from darkness and from judgment and from sin. He's come that they may be free, that they may have life, and that they may have it abundantly. And he has come as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This is the plan. This is the mission he's been given. This is the grand story of redemption. And it begins with this charge that the Son has received from his Father. And that leads to the second point this morning, the second major heading. We've seen the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ was all part of a divine plan. Now secondly, this plan would require the death of the Son of God. This plan would require the death of the Son of God. I'll ask that you look again if you're still open to John 10 at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you were with us last week, I made the observation, this statement from Jesus surely transcends the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. Shepherds certainly in different ways sacrifice themselves for the sheep, but probably death was not in view. And yet for Jesus, that's exactly what is in view. He will die for his sheep. He will lay down his life of the sheep. And then please look again at verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The language of laying down, laying down one's life. At the heart of this image of laying down one's life for others is the idea of sacrifice, of substitution. The death of the Son of God would be a sacrifice for sin. Harm, injury, and even death that might have come to the sheep now comes to the shepherd. Judgment and wrath that might have come to sinners is going to come to the Son of God in their place. Substitution, sacrifice. The shepherd will sacrifice himself for the sheep. The Son of God will lay down his life for his people. This is the redemptive plan. This is the charge. The death of the Son of God for the life of the world. The sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, for the forgiveness of sins. 
This is all part of the charge that the son was given from the father. He was charged to lay down his life for his sheep. This plan, this charge would require the death of the son of God. And this is precisely why Jesus came. This is why the Son of God came into the world in human flesh. He came to die. He didn't merely come or even mainly come to give us um, some very helpful ethical teaching, such as the Sermon on the Mount or the Golden Rule or something like that. The Golden Rule, of course, is so precious and foundational to us who are the Lord's people. It's become foundational to ethics in the West. And yet that's not the main reason Jesus came. The golden rule was revealed in the Old Testament as well. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to lay down his life for the sheep. You can't escape this. This is, this is precisely why the Son of God came into the world. That he would appear before God as a substitute as a sacrifice for sinners. And he would absorb the wrath of God and thereby atone for the sins of his people. This is the charge that the Lord Jesus was given. Now the focus of these verses, verse 17 and 18 of John 10, is on the initiative of the Son. He says he's received a charge from his Father, but he uses a lot of personal pronouns and a lot of active verbs to describe what, what he does. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So it's worth asking, I think, what is motivating Jesus? Why is he willing to lay down his life? He has the authority to lay it down, take it up again. Why does he execute that authority in giving himself up to die on the cross? And in John 10, I think we get at least two reasons Two things that are motivating Jesus. Why does Jesus die? Two main reasons in John 10. The first is this. He dies out of love for his sheep. Jesus is determined to fulfill this charge to go to the cross, to execute his authority over his own life out of love for the sheep. He says, verse 11, I lay down my life for the sheep. See, Jesus' death had an actual goal. It wasn't just some act that he would hope that some people somewhere might embrace. He had a target audience. It was his sheep. It was actual sinners. It was individuals whose names Jesus knew. That's what it actually says in verse 3. He says, I call my sheep, I know them by name, and I call them out, they follow me. Like sinners whose names Jesus knew. There's a specificity to Jesus' work of atonement. Then he says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And it's for these sheep that Jesus lays down his life, specific ones for whom Jesus died, and it's for them that he gives his life a ransom. His death then is the ultimate expression of love for them. That language, laying down one's life, will come up again in John 15. There Jesus says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying the supreme expression of love is in the willingness, and an actual fact, laying down one's life 
for another, for his friends, for his sheep. This is the supreme expression of the Lord's love for his people. Just as a side note, we have at the front of the New Testament four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm afraid sometimes we think that that's just sort of an amalgam of various stories about Jesus, and they all sort of say the same thing. And we don't appreciate that there are various differences in each of the gospel accounts. I don't mean contradictions, but differences in terms of perspective, some material that's in one and not another. Each gospel has its own main focus. Luke's account is one of the longest of the gospels and one of the most unique. Did you know that from Luke 9, at least the latter part of Luke 9, on through chapter 24, the end of the gospel, is all a record of the last week of Jesus' life? Almost two-thirds of the material in Luke is covering the last week of the Lord's life. And that section is introduced with these words in Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He knows what's in Jerusalem. Arrest, trial, execution, and death. But he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Purpose, mission, plan, charge, fulfillment, accomplishment. He set his face. It echoes the words uh, from Isaiah 50 on the lips of the Lord's anointed one prophesying of the coming Christ, he says, I have set my face like flint. There's a mission. There's a task. There's a purpose. Jesus sets his face toward the cross so that he might die for the ones he loves. He is determined. He is resolved He has in his mind, in his heart, the names of his sheep, the actual names of people he knew, actual sinners with actual birthdays and actual histories. He had names like Peter in his mind, and John, and James, and Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus, and the woman at the well in John 4 whose name we don't know, but surely the Lord knows her name. And the the man born blind in John 9 who comes to believe upon Jesus and worship him, he set his face for his sheep. He's resolved to go to die because he loves them. And he's determined that this supreme expression of love would be carried out and that he would die for his own, die for his sheep. I hope that if you're in Christ, that comforts you. As you see the Lord Jesus going to the cross, you can hear him reciting your name and the names of your brothers and sisters in fulfillment of this charge the Lord had given him. But that leads to the second motivation. It's driving Jesus to fulfill this charge. And that is that he does so out of obedience to his Father. Love for his sheep, obedience to his Father. There was this charge he was given. There was this command, there was this mission given from the Father to the Son, and Jesus' death is necessary to fulfill that charge and that mission. The Father has sent His Son to die, and it is the Son's delight to execute the will of His Father. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What do I love to do? What is my delight? What is like my food? It's to do the will of my Father. It's to accomplish His work. Like, that's what sustains me. That's what keeps me going. I'm carrying out a charge, a plan. This is all in fulfillment of my Father's will, and it's like food to me. 
to do the will of my Father. John 6, verse 37 through 40. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Aren't you thankful that that is the will of the Father, and that's the will that the Son executes? The father might have charged his son, go and clean him out. Go in judgment. Go in fire. And go to extinguish. That's not what he says. That's not the will of the father. His will is that sinners might be saved and that they might have eternal life. And so Jesus comes ultimately on a rescue mission. He comes in love to save all those who the father has given to him. So what's motivating Jesus in the accomplishment of this work? Love for his people, yes, but also obedience to the will of his Father. And listen, this isn't like rote, unfeeling obedience. I'll just do what my Father says, but I'm going to grit my teeth and get through it. Jesus' death is not only an obedience to the Father, it's out of love for the Father, with the obedience itself being the expression of that love. John 14, verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. This obedience is out of love for his Father. So what's motivating Christ as he sets his face toward Jerusalem to go to the cross, as he sets his face to fulfill this charge, this task, this mission? It's for his people and it's for his Father. It's out of love for them and out of love for him. Now, most of you probably know the rest of the story. Jesus, it's interesting in John's account to read of his arrest. Uh, they come to take him. He actually sees them afar off, and he goes to them to meet them, essentially to give himself up. And he says, who do you seek? And they say, we seek the man called Jesus. And he says, I am he. And they all fall on the ground. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, who do you seek? Like, I'm right here. Come on. Do what you came to do. We're keeping a schedule here. My father has a plan. Just take me in. And then when Jesus is arrested and he's in custody and is appearing before the various uh, chief priests and all of that, he says to them, you would have no authority unless it was given you by my father. Don't, don't pretend. I'm here by appointment. You're just puppets carrying out the plan that my father has given me to do. You're in your roles of authority and you're doing the things you're doing because my Father has placed you there and because I've been given a charge from my Father. And of course, he goes to the cross in fulfillment of this plan and this charge and what is on his lips when it's all said and done? It is finished. The charge has been met. The command has been accomplished. The mission is nearing completion. It is finished. And that leads to my third and final point this morning. The salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ was all part of a divine plan. This plan would require the death of the Son of God. And thirdly, this plan would reach its completion in the resurrection of the Son. 
This plan, this charge would reach its completion in the resurrection of the Son. Again, looking at verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The death of Jesus was not an end in itself. It was utterly necessary for the accomplishment of redemption, but it was completely ineffectual if he remained in the grave. Jesus laid down his life so that he might take it up again. The language that I may take it up again in verse 17, that should be understood as a purpose clause. Why does he lay down his life? So that, in order that, for the purpose that, he would take it up again. I'm not going to die to die. I'm going to die to rise. That's the purpose for which I go to the cross. I will lay down my life. I will take it up again in fulfillment of this charge that I've been given from my Father. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down that I may take it up. The Father, in essence, said to the Son, Son, you must go to my lost sheep, and you must live among them, and you must die for them as a substitute, but you must not stay in the grave. You will rise, Son. You will take up your life again. This is the charge I give you. You go, you die, and you rise. And you do it all for the salvation of my people. You do it to be a savior for sinners. And of course, we know that by the resurrection, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. More than that, the Son's resurrection entitled him to the place of highest authority at the Father's right hand, where he now rules and reigns over all. And because he has risen, as I told the children at the start of this message, sinners can come to him, turning from sin and believing on him as a living Savior who has accomplished redemption for his people, who has died as a substitute and as a sacrifice for us, but now lives, having risen from the dead, offering himself as a Savior for sinners. This is, in essence, the charge that was given. The salvation of sinners was all part of a divine plan, a plan that would require the death of God's own Son and a plan that would reach its completion in the resurrection of the Son. This is the message that we call the gospel. It is the message, as Paul says, that is the power of God unto salvation. It's the message that must be believed For someone to inherit eternal life and to have salvation in Jesus. This is the message that God has sent His Son into the world, that the Son died to make atonement for sin, and that He has risen again over sin and death, and even now stands ready to save all those who come to Him in repentance and faith. I'll close by sharing a resurrection story. After Jesus rose from the dead, you might know the story that he was first seen by Mary, the other women who were with her. And then sometime later, he sees his disciples and reveals himself to them, risen from the dead. But one disciple in particular was not with them. Do you know who that was? Thomas, right? 
Thomas is not with the disciples when the Lord first reveals himself to the disciples. And the other disciples go to Thomas and they say, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas won't believe it. And poor Thomas, of course, has the nickname now, Doubting Thomas, because he doubted that word. It's very unfortunate and uncharitable. We don't know Peter as denying Peter, right? <laughs> but Thomas, maybe the Lord wishes to humble him. He's doubting Thomas. He doubted that word. And he said, unless I can put my finger in the imprint of the nails, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And so eight days later, the disciples are all together. This time Thomas is with them. What's going to happen? The Lord Jesus appears in their midst. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? But he, he, he could have wheeled up on Thomas. He said, Thomas, you faithless disciple. I cast you out. You have no business to be here. He doesn't do that. He says, Thomas, come here. Put your fingers in the wounds. Put your hand in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And what does Thomas do? He does what I think every true soul does in the presence of the risen Christ, whether by sight or by faith. He falls on the floor and says, my Lord and my God, and he worships Jesus. And then the apostle John, writing this account in chapter 20, includes this editorial comment. He says, now Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these have been written, and this sermon has been preached, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is, in essence, the gospel message. Jesus has come, he has died, and he has risen, and he stands ready to receive all those who come to him by faith. And that if you come to him by faith, you will have life in his name. Listen, you need not perish. You need not die in your sins. You need not enter judgment and wrath and hell. God has sent his son. He's made a provision. He's made a way. There was a plan for your soul to be saved. It was in the coming of Jesus Christ, the son of God, into the world and he's offered before you now through his word. He stands before you as the risen Savior, arms spread wide, saying, all those who would come to me by faith, any who thirsts, any who hungers can come to me and find living water and find the bread of life and have eternal life in Jesus' name. No one here within the sound of my voice has to perish. No one here has to die in their sins. No one here has to enter the judgment. If you hear this gospel message, and if you believe on God's Son, the Lord Jesus, that indeed He came in fulfillment of God's plan, that He died for sinners, and that He is risen now, seated at the right hand of God, where He ever lives to make intercessions for His people, and where He is still receiving sinners who come to Him by faith. If you believe that message and if you go to him today repenting of sin and believing on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you that it was your will not to come and to condemn and to judge and destroy, but that you sent your Son in love, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that the Savior that has been presented to us through the witness of Scripture is one who stands ready to save sinners, one who offers life, one who offers full and free pardon, one who offers the forgiveness of sins and salvation in His name. Father, we pray that even now Your Son, the Good Shepherd, would lift up His voice and call out His own, that some here would hear the voice of the Shepherd calling them by name. May they believe on him and trust him. Oh God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for every initiative of grace in the history of redemption. And most of all, for your son, the Lord Jesus. I pray these things in his name. Amen.